Last month, a number of you came to a banner lecture here about the year 1968 and the Vietnam War. Well, today we're going back a half century earlier, exactly a half century earlier, to another conflict, the First World War, the Great War. The United States had stayed out of the conflict until spring 1917, but was drawn into the fight in April of that year. By the following summer, the American Expeditionary Force had sent enough troops to Europe to begin to influence the outcome. After four years of stalemate on the Western Front, a final Allied push broke the German Army in autumn 1918, 91 years ago this fall. The Mesargonne Offensive represented the war's largest commitment of American troops to battle. It was the deadliest action fought by the American Expeditionary Force in the First World War, and it helped pave the way for German capitulation in November. Today, we're very fortunate indeed to have with us the leading expert on that epic battle, Edward Lingle. Dr. Lingle is Associate Professor of History at the University of Virginia, where he is an editor with the papers of George Washington. And in addition to that work on the 18th century, he's also an accomplished scholar and writer of the First World War. Of course, it just so happens that our museum shop has a copy, have, have copies of, of the book, and you can get a personally inscribed a copy after the lecture. The title is To Conquer Hell, the Mirrors Are Gone, 1918. In it, Dr. Lengel tells the epic tale of American soldiers in the final campaign of World War I. Please welcome Dr. Ed Lengel. Good afternoon, and thanks to all of you for coming. I'm, I'm pleased and flattered to have such a large crowd. About Fifteen years ago, when I came out of graduate school at the University of Virginia, I hitched my wagon to a star known as George Washington. And George has done uh, very well for me. Um, I've worked at the Washington Papers at the University of Virginia as, as an editor since 15 years ago and edited numerous volumes of his correspondence and written books about George as well. So he's, he's kind of become a, a good friend of mine. But I have to confess that he does become a tad dull at times. Uh, though he is, he is a fascinating man, he, he does become a bit tedious, especially if you live with him every day uh, of, your, of your entire career. So a few years ago, I decided I wanted to go back to my main passion as a historian, which in graduate school and before, for some reason, has always been the First World War era. I find the First World War to be, first of all, the most important event of the modern era. It has defined almost every aspect of the way we live today. Our politics, our economy, our culture and society uh, and just practically everything else. It's, it's a critically important time. But also, to me, it's, it's a fascinating moment, not so much really, although I am a military historian, not so much because of the types of equipment that were used or the types of military formations or how the battles were fought, but the war as a human experience, to me, is just an incredibly moving and an incredibly important moment in world history and in our nation's history as well. It has long been a hobby of mine to collect First World War memoirs, uh, first-hand accounts, letters, and diaries, and to read them. I've read hundreds of them. Uh, and to try to get inside the minds of the doughboys and also the women uh, who won over there and experienced for the first time, what modern warfare could do and what it was like for them. And I found that there really is no one experience, but there are hundreds, thousands, millions of different experiences, which really every man and every woman experienced in their own way. Uh, and it's, it's a cataclysmic moment, but it's, I think it says a lot about 
human psychology, human nature, and the human spirit. And it's, to me, it's not just, as many people think, a downer. I think a lot of Americans look at the First World War and they tend to think, oh, that's really a depressing, uh, miserable experience. Why, why would you want to spend your time thinking about that? But to me, ultimately, there's something edifying and even inspiring and redeeming about this experience and what it says about, about humanity. Well, all of that's very well and good, but when I decided a few years ago that I'd like to write a book about it, my uh, agent told me I had to be crazy, and publishers told me I had to be crazy. They said I was told directly that the First World War has poor entertainment value, <laughs> and so we're not interested. Finally, one publisher decided to take a chance, uh, Henry Holt, and thus this book, To Conquer Hell, was born. And as I was preparing this book, I decided, naturally, I needed to go and I needed to see the battlefield itself. I needed to go over to France and walk the field and kind of get a sense of what it was like. It was an amazing experience. I did this in the summer of 2006, and I hired a French guide uh, to take me over there. The Meuse-Argonne battlefield is just a short distance north of Verdun, and Verdun was the largest, most devastating battle of the First World War, uh, fought between the French and the Germans in uh, early 1916. And the Meuse-Argonne battlefield is just a short distance north of that, and in fact, parts of the battlefield, the Meuse-Argonne, merge with the Verdun battlefield. Well, those of you who have explored American battlefields, say Civil War battlefields, Revolutionary War battlefields, obviously there are plenty of them around here, would see that there's absolutely no comparison between those and the First World War battlefields. In the Civil War battlefields, you have to use your imagination to a great extent, to kind of recreate in your mind's eye what the battlefield was like, uh, because so many things have changed. Uh, you have you know, areas like Fredericksburg have been urbanized. Uh, other areas have been plowed over. Unfortunately, Walmart's being built uh, next to battlefields and such. In France, and the Meuse-Argonne, it's utterly different. When you step on these battlefields, it's like walking back into 1918 with one step. It is literally left as it was at the end of the battle. French peasants, being what they are, being generally very conservative, very reluctant to change anything, pretty much plow the same fields over and over again. They don't change. They don't cut down woods. They don't grow woods where there used to be fields. If you study the battle map and you study the battle in 1918 and then you go to the battlefield, everything is exactly in the same place. Farms were destroyed. They rebuilt the farms on exactly the same spot with exactly the same architecture. And the tree lines are exactly as they were. The fields are exactly as they were. The roads are exactly as they were. But most amazingly is if you pull over by the side of the road and you walk into the woods, you have to watch out that you don't fall into a trench because they're absolutely left like they were in 1918. I went to a place called Mulville Farm, which was part of the Meuse-Argonne battle, where the U.S. 29th Division fought, uh, the 29th Division being the Blue-Gray, and part of it was from Virginia and part from New Jersey. And this division fought over this farm, and uh, it was a, a tremendously bloody part of the battle. It's, it's basically a farm in a clearing surrounded by woods, and the clearing slopes upwards. The Americans had to march across this clearing up the slope against German entrenchments right at the top of the, the slope in the woods at the top. So I parked there got out of the car, walked into the woods, and there were all the German entrenchments. You could see individual gun pits, individual trenches. The bunkers were there. You walk over to the bunker, and there are piles of wine bottles and oysters right outside the bunker left there by the German officers uh, and German soldiers when they left in 1918, and nobody's bothered to pick them up. 
you have to watch out because there's not only rusty barbed wire and rusty metal everywhere you look, but there's unexploded ordnance all over the place. Uh, and it's more dangerous now than it ever was before because the casing on these shells and, worst of all, these gas canisters is corroding. Uh, it continues to corrode. The contents become more and more unstable, and uh, civilians continue to die. Uh, and sometimes curiosity seekers and collectors are killed. Uh, I saw a mustard gas canister just sitting there seeping mustard out of, out of its edges. Unexploded 75 millimeter shells, unexploded rifle shells. I walked to a part of the battlefield where the Lost Battalion fought. And the Lost Battalion was really the most dramatic uh, and well-known moment of the Meuse-Argonne where a number of companies of the American 77th Division under Charles Whittlesey were trapped and surrounded by Germans during the battle for, for a number of days. And uh, the Germans attacked them over and over again, were unable to, to get them to surrender, and eventually they were relieved. There was a horrible made-for-TV movie made about this, uh, I think, for HBO a few years ago that had Ricky Schroeder in it. Um, but... You stop at this, at this point, which is a famous moment in this battle. And I got out of the car and I walked down the slope where these troops had been trapped for, I think, five days. And you can see the individual rifle pits that they dug out of the hillside. They're still there. And even more, I didn't have a metal detector or anything. I walked around this, this area, I wanted to find out where the flanks were, and I'm walking along, and I kick over some, some leaves, and out rolls a, a cartridge, which had been fired, and a spent cartridge from an American rifle that had been fired by one of these members of the Lost Battalion. Nearby, we found a piece of a flare gun uh, that one of them had, had fired during the, during the first moments of the battle. Imagine that on any Civil War battlefield. Now, can you imagine going up little round top and kicking some leaves aside? Hey, look at that. You know, there's a, you know, a musket ball or there's a belt buckle or whatever. World War I battlefields are like that because everything is there. So that's fascinating, and it's, it's an amazing place to walk. But there's also a sad side to this story is how forgotten it is. Here on this battlefield, 26,000 Americans died. Uh, it remains the bloodiest battle in American history. And the vast majority of those young men died during a three-week period. Um, from September 26, 1918 to about mid-October 1918 is when the heaviest fighting took place. In that period, 26,000 died, 100,000 casualties in addition to that. And over one million soldiers were involved in this battle. And this battle was not only the biggest battle of the First World War, but it appreciably hastened the end of that war. And here is this, this incredible battle, and yet you can walk in the battlefield, and there's nobody there. And it's also very poorly marked, unfortunately. The Lost Battalion side, again, this famous engagement, the only thing that marks it is this little cement marker that says Lost Battalion, and there's, there's an arrow pointing down the hill, and that's it. Many other parts of the engagement, there's nothing there. Only recently did a group go out and try to figure out where Sergeant York had earned his Medal of Honor. And in fact, there's still a lot of debate about exactly where that happened, but only recently in the, next, in the last couple of years was any attempt made to actually mark that site. And so it's, it's, it's incredible, the neglect. There are many memorials there that were built in the 1920s uh, by veterans groups and by others uh, to attempt to remember this battle. And many of them are still very lovingly maintained by the American Battle Monuments Commission, which, which is just a very dedicated organization. They keep it clean and mowed and, and preserved, but nobody visits. I went to the cemetery that was built in the center of this battle. It's at a place called Roman. This is the largest American cemetery in Europe. 
14,000 men, over 14,000 soldiers are buried there. It's a beautiful place. It's maintained by the Battle Monuments Commission. It's on this, uh, this beautiful, gentle slope. It has a wonderful chapel, a Romanesque chapel, um, and all the graves are very carefully tended and marked. And when I went there, I spoke with uh, the superintendent, Dr. Joseph Rivers, who'd been there for a long time, and we talked about who came, who visited. He said, aside from the occasional delegation, uh, uh, American military uh, delegation from one of the bases in Germany, he said Americans just don't come there. It's the same distance from Paris as the Omaha Beach Cemetery is. And Omaha Beach, I went during the same trip, it's heavily visited as it should be, and it's honored as it should be. But you contrast a day at the Omaha Beach Cemetery with a day here at Roman, it's empty. Now, there are lots of flowers laid at the graves of the doughboys, and you see them as you walk through. But who's laying these flowers? And you can see from the little card tributes that are, that are put there, the people who are laying these flowers are British and French and Belgian and German. Lots of Germans come there and, and memorialize the dead as well. But Americans don't come. I had a friend uh, who's a journalist here in Virginia, and he went during a recent uh, Veterans Day a few years ago to, to the cemetery and uh, met with Dr. Rivers, and there was a large crowd assembled there to hear the president, then, then President Bush's traditional uh, Veterans Day proclamation. And so Dr. Rivers looked around, so you can, it's, it's only appropriate that we find an American to read this, this Veterans Day tribute. He couldn't find a single American in the crowd. There was not one American there. So he had to get my friend, the journalist, to read the proclamation because there was nobody else there. So the, the neglect is palpable, and we can debate, uh, as we should debate, why. Uh, and I hope if we get to the question and answer period, we can do that. My own sense of why probably ruffles some feathers. I think there are many things that go into it, uh, one of them is obviously that after World War I, you have World War II, which tends to overshadow it. Also, after World War I, you have the Great Depression. Uh, you have a lot of other events that tend to make it kind of pale in comparison. And plus, it seems that since it was the war fought to end all wars and it did not end all wars, it's also something that maybe is, is difficult to think about. But I think even more... Uh, and this is where some people perhaps get annoyed with me, I think World War I does not appeal to Americans, and not just Americans, but other people as well, to our sense of story, uh, to our sense of here's a great story we can read about that moves and has excitement and has drama. And we think if we look at World War I, our, our immediate reaction is, this is depressing, it's dull, nothing happened, just a lot of guys getting slaughtered, uh, and it's just not something we want to think about. I'd rather read something about the Civil War, World War II, or something else. And, and I think World War I suffers from that perception, which is inaccurate, that there's just not much to say about it except it was misery and slaughter. Now, if you go to Canada, if you go to Australia, to England, to France, to Germany, to practically any other country except perhaps Russia, World War I is very real and very alive in their memory. Uh, and it's not just those like the British and the French and the Germans who have the battlefields there, but the Canadians and the Australians who are thousands of miles away from the battlefields like we are, their children are taught about the First World War. And they're taught what it was about and what happened, and it's something that remains very alive for them. But in this country, it isn't. And that was true not just in, since World War II, but it actually was true at the very end of World War I. When I was researching this book, uh, and I tried to research in primary accounts of the veterans themselves. I wanted them to speak for themselves. 
uh, to give their own experiences. So I tried to use their diaries and letters and so on and so forth. One of the most difficult things to read about was to read their perceptions of what happened when they came home and their attempts to readjust with civilian society. And one thing I found kind of as a running theme, and it really surprised me through, through many of these soldiers' accounts, was that when they got home, they wanted to share their experiences of what happened with their family members, with other civilians, with those who, who hadn't experienced the war, but that people didn't want to hear it. And that, that kind of turns on its head our perception of what happened. I've heard from lots of uh, veterans' descendants, and they said, you know, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, he came back, he didn't really want to speak about the war. He didn't have, he kind of kept it quiet. He didn't want to discuss it because it was too terrible. And they respected that. But the soldier's perception, very often, not always, but very often, was that I wanted to talk about what had happened. But when I tried to talk about it, my family members or the other civilians' response was, well, isn't that just too horrible? It, it doesn't bear thinking about. Let's talk about something else. And they, in many ways, pushed them back. As, as one soldier said, I quoted him in here, he said, it's, been, it's, it's like somebody telling you, I've heard that joke before. And they said, it shut, it shut us up. And it kind of made us withdraw within ourselves. And I think it, the moment has really come. We have the 100th anniversary of the war coming up. And I think the moment has come to recover those memories as much as we can. There's only one American doughboy left, uh, Frank Buckles, who lives in Charleston, West Virginia. He was not a combat veteran. And it's too late for all the others to speak to them. But I think we can read and learn from what they left behind. And one of the amazing things is, and me again being a, a collector of memoirs and somebody who reads hundreds of them, is we tend to assume that, okay, if you want to read about the First World War, like in many colleges and universities, you read All Quiet on the Western Front, okay, that's it don't need to read anything else, or maybe one or two British memoirs. There are hundreds of American memoirs that have been published, some of them incredibly powerful and great works of literature. And they're available. They're out there. But we're not reading them. There's a book toward my favorite uh, memoir is a book called Toward the Flame by Hervey Allen about a soldier of the Pennsylvania National Guard 28th Division, his experiences in, the world, in World War I. It's more powerful than almost any European memoir I've ever read, but very few people know about it. And I think we can do a lot just to make that attempt to read and to learn from what they did. I think that's one way to, to honor them uh, and to also recover for ourselves the meaning of what World War I was about. And I think that, that will, will really benefit us as a nation. Let me talk briefly about what happened. What happened in the Meuse-Argonne and what the Doughboys' experience was like going over and, and fighting there in the First World War. And I emphasize here that there is no typical experience. Again, as I mentioned earlier, any one soldier experiences warfare in different ways. Any woman who goes over as a nurse or women who now are, uh, are going over with the military now experiences it in a different way. And we need to get beyond that sense of the typical experience because each person experiences different things and brings out different conclusions. Many Americans who won over there, idealistic, came back disillusioned and bitter. But many won over there and fought and came back saying, it was terrible, but I'd do it again because I did the right thing. There were some who won over and fought and actually enjoyed it. There were some who won over and, and they choose to remember the fun experiences. So there's, there's not 
a typical experience, but I can give a general outline. Who were the Doughboys? Where does the term Doughboy come from? We don't know exactly where it comes from. I, I think uh, one of the most convincing uh, arguments I've heard is uh, that it came from Pershing's experiences in the Mexican expedition. Shortly before World War I, Blackjack Pershing led an expedition to uh, the border with Mexico to try to hunt down Pancho Villa. And they rode through these uh, villages, these adobe villages, and all the white dust that came up from the roads kind of plastered their uniforms and turned them white and made them look like they were made out of dough. And I've heard the argument that that was where the term doughboy came from. Others say it came from their love of donuts. That's also plausible, <laughs> which is something that, that uh, the troops from other countries always remarked on. Uh, but be that what, it's, what it may, the, the Doughboys were an incredibly diverse group. They were brought, and this is almost cliche, they were taken from all facets of, of American society at that time. Uh, obviously, you'd have everybody from you know, ex-cons, ex-gangsters, the 33rd Division uh, that I wrote about in this book from the Illinois National Guard, uh, that fought here in the Meuse-Argonne, a uh, big element of it came from Chicago, downtown Chicago, and they were kind of called the gangsters. Many of them were gangsters. Uh, the 77th Division had soldiers from uh, Brooklyn and from Manhattan and New York, and a lot of these guys uh, were ex-gangsters. Um, you know, tough, tough urban, uh, poor people. But there are lots of farm boys from Nebraska, uh, Southerners, New Englanders, uh, many Virginians, hillbillies, uh, you name it, they were there. I think one of the things, there, there are a couple of things that I would say sets them apart from other soldiers, uh, from other uh, American contingents uh, that have fought in different wars. And one of them is the huge immigrant uh, contingent. Millions, America had been transformed in the early 20th century by this, these massive waves of immigrants who came from Europe, uh, who came from Italy, from Russia, from Germany, England, everywhere else. And America was a, a hugely immigrant society in the early 20th century. So many of the Americans who joined up or who were drafted were themselves immigrants or sons of immigrants. When the uh, 77th Division, again from New York, as I mentioned, won into the lines for the first time, the Germans opposite thought an Italian division had moved in because these guys were in there just talking to each other in Italian. So, so that's one of, one of the main things. Another thing that, that is unpleasant to say about, about this army is how pervasive the racism was. And it, it was absolutely pervasive. Uh, when I read diaries and letters and other accounts, and I'm not just talking about Southerners, I'm talking about New Englanders, Midwesterners, Westerners, everybody else, there are lots of commentaries on black troops and blacks in general, and they did not like them. The black troops of the 92nd and 93rd Divisions who uh, won over there and fought were treated very badly uh, by other Americans, uh, and it, it shows. This was in the period right before the height of power of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, and, and it, it really shows. Uh, and that's kind of, that's, that's very unpleasant actually, but uh, it reflects American society at that time. And the Doughboys reflected the society from which they came. Now these boys were completely unprepared for what they were about to face. Large numbers of them were conscripts, obviously, the First World War. There was a, the conscription uh, that brought many of them in unwillingly. Uh, and then many of them were volunteers, but they were all alike in their complete unpreparedness. They were trained very poorly, uh, trained at places like Camp Lee in Virginia. Uh, and you read their accounts of it, essentially it was route marches on and on and on and on and on. Just march and march and drill. 
they were given very little training in weaponry, partly because there was very little weaponry available to train them with. Uh, many of them, instead of getting machine guns to train with, they had sticks. Um, instead of tanks, uh, they had cardboard cutouts. Uh, it it was, was very poor training, and many of them did not see a rifle, did not learn how to fire a rifle or even see a rifle until they went into combat for the first time and were given this equipment. Part of this was because of the unpreparedness. Uh, the country was not ready to enter the war, uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that. I, I don't have time to get into. But part of it was because of Pershing's attitude and the attitude of his generals that we have nothing to learn from our allies. Their attitude was that the French and the British had been demoralized by their experience in the trenches, that they didn't understand anymore. They had no longer the will to victory. They had, did not have that American individualistic fighting spirit. And in Pershing's mind, that was what wins a war, is the individual's will to victory. Now, I have to be careful here. I, I, I tread on delicate ground. Uh, when I gave a talk uh, several months ago, uh, I made the mistake of, of saying that the Americans went into the First World War with all the bravery and, and twice the stupidity as did the French in 1914. Well, what I mean by that is not that the individual soldiers were stupid or to denigrate them or to put them down in any way. They had tremendous bravery and they had uh, tremendous courage and their due all honor. But their commanders in many respects were foolish to disregard the lessons that were there before them. And they paid the price. The Doughboys paid the price. They were sent into battle with very little understanding of how to minimize casualties, how to exploit breakthroughs, fire and maneuver, combined arms concepts. They, they were not taught, and they suffered for it. To talk briefly, again, I, I want to leave time for questions, so, so let me talk about the Meuse-Argonne and what type of a battle it was. The Meuse-Argonne was conceived by Pershing. It's a very complicated uh, discussion of the politics that went on between the Americans and the French and why they fought in the Meuse-Argonne, and I won't get into that. But it was conceived as an opportunity to take a certain uh, railway line, a railway jun junction at Mezières near Sedan in France, that fed the whole of the German army in northwestern France, northeastern France. It was a critical railway junction. It was very important. The Germans could not afford to lose it. The Germans were determined to defend it at all costs. On other parts of the front where the British and the French were attacking the Germans, this is again toward the end of the war, the Germans could afford to trade space for time, and they did that. They withdrew. Here before the Americans, the Germans were determined to hold on tooth and nail. Pershing was determined to break through and seize this railway line. His feeling was that, that we could get this done within a few days, and it ended up taking six weeks. Nine American divisions uh, attacked on a, on a very short front. Their attack was northward through a battlefield that the French and Germans had been fighting over for four years. It was really a horrible battlefield. It was heavily pitted, uh, mine explosions, trenches, craters everywhere. It was a very difficult battlefield. You had marshes, you had rivers, thick woods, uh, ravines, large hills uh, and valleys. It was a very difficult area to traverse. The American attack, because of this inexperience, bogged down almost immediately with very heavy casualties. The Germans basically swept the battlefield on both sides, east and west, with artillery. So it was very difficult. And without getting into all the details, it became a slogging match pretty quickly. But within that battlefield, there were moments of 
incredible heroism and bravery. There were lots of medals of honor that were earned in the Mizargon, and some of the characters who were there were just incredibly colorful people. George S. Patton was there in Mizargon, and he got his blooding there quite literally. He uh, was with the tanks, and the American tanks, they weren't really American, they were French. They were little, little uh, rattletrap Renault tanks uh, that had often just little machine guns or small cannon attached to them. Uh, and they were easily destroyed, uh, and the Americans did not really understand, and there were French crews too, didn't really understand how to use them. Patton had been told to stay back at headquarters and to watch his tanks advance uh, and to keep in contact with them through headquarters, but Patton being Patton uh, couldn't bear it, so as soon as the, the tanks went forward, he drove forward against orders with them, hopped on a tank, rode it up to the front lines, this is on the first day of the battle, and got bogged down uh, in the mud along with the rest of the tanks. He found American infantry there who were confused and didn't know what to do, so Patton hopped off and started beating them uh, to get them back into line, and he wrote uh, in his journal very nonchalantly that he thought he killed a man because uh, he hit him over the head with a shovel. Uh, at a short time after that, Patton was shot in the bottom uh, and uh, knocked into a shell hole and uh, remained there for the rest of the day, and then he was evacuated. That was the end of his battle. But there were also people who were involved in this battle like MacArthur, uh, Douglas MacArthur, uh, Alvin York, Harry Truman was there. Truman was with an artillery unit from Kansas City who were all Irishmen uh, and who uh, could, it was very hard for Truman to prevent them from getting into fistfights with each other. This was, this was known as the, um, his particular company, I think it was known as the, uh, like the slugging 69th or something. <laughs> but as soon as he took them over, they met him with a huge fistfight uh, that, that broke out. But he actually proved himself to be an excellent commander. MacArthur who was with the 42nd, he was a brigadier general with the 42nd Rainbow Division, uh, wrote in his memoirs that at one point in the battle he led a group of uh, soldiers forward to try to find during the nighttime a gap in the German wire and to break through. And just at the moment they were out there, an artillery bombardment came over and killed every man except him. And he had to find his way back. Well, he was almost certainly lying, <laughs> uh, and uh, he claimed that he himself found the gap in the wire that at the critical moment in the battle allowed the Americans to break through, and he made this claim, uh, and only later uh, an airman said, hey, I found that gap a few days before you said you did, and I sent that report to headquarters. Uh, so MacArthur being MacArthur. But the, the stories of the individual Americans who fought there and the, the Doughboys, some of them are incredibly dramatic. And I could take Sergeant York. Sergeant York's story has been told uh, very often. He's a, he's a cousin of mine, actually. Um, nevertheless, I'd like to focus just very briefly before we end here on, on two men who I think symbolize what the Americans did in this battle. One of them is a man called Jack Barkley. And Jack Barkley was from Missouri. Uh, he was just a farm boy like, like York. And Barkley uh, fought with a, a unit attached to the 3rd Division, and he was a, uh, kind, of a um, kind, of, kind of like a, um, a pioneer or a scout. Uh, and he was told to man a listening post overnight that was in a crater in between the American and the German lines, and he had a telephone with him that was set on buzz, uh, on a light buzz. Obviously, it couldn't ring because then it would alert the Germans that he was there. And just as the Germans began an attack at dawn the next morning, they sent over an artillery bombardment that cut his telephone. So he had no way of getting information back, nor did he have any way of getting back to his own lines. And the Germans were coming. He was in a shell hole overlooking a valley. So he looked around, and he saw way down in the valley an abandoned tank, an abandoned French tank that was sitting there from which the machine gun that was in the turret had been removed. 
So he thought of that, and he looked around, and he saw an abandoned German machine gun, Maxim machine gun, with boxes of equipment, I mean boxes of ammunition nearby. So he grabbed it all up, lugged it over. He was just one man, so the Germans apparently didn't notice him. Lugged it over to the tank, got in, mounted the machine gun in the tank, and single-handedly from that tank broke up an entire battalion of German infantry and broke up their entire attack. That's a very dramatic story, which I wish I could tell in more detail. He earned the Medal of Honor for that. But another man was Charles Whittlesey, who was the commander of the Lost Battalion. His troops were, as I mentioned, uh, hardened men from Brooklyn, uh, urban, urban toughs for the most part. He was an upper-class New England lawyer, a very delicate-looking. He wore... Uh, little pince-nez, uh, pince-nez uh, glasses, and uh, seemed very kind of intellectual. It seemed like he didn't have much to do with his men. But he led them in this battle in the Lost Battalion, and he showed incredible bravery in keeping them together. Uh, even when they'd run out of food, they'd run out of water, uh, and the Germans were attacking them on all sides. And after the battle was over and his troops were relieved, he was treated as a hero. Uh, And he was given all of these uh, celebrations and honors and everything. He was brought up with Pershing and met President Wilson and everything else. But deep down, Whittlesey blamed himself for every single one of his men he had lost there in that pocket. He blamed himself for every one of them, and he was troubled by nightmares uh, constantly. And a short time after the war, he uh, got on a steamer uh, bound for Cuba. He had no business in Cuba and uh, jumped overboard and killed himself because he couldn't overcome those, those torturing memories. Yet, during this battle, The beginning was a slogging match. You see this process as the battle progressed of these American doughboys and their junior officers beginning to learn on the job. And here, for me, is one of the redeeming elements of this battle, is that despite their lack of training, despite their lack of equipment and everything else, they began to sense what they were involved in, and they began to learn like amateur citizen soldiers that Americans have been throughout the centuries, they began to learn on the job how to fight. And they began to develop their own techniques of fire and maneuver, their own techniques of combined arms concept. And by the time you get to the end of the battle, when the Americans made a final attack on November 1st and broke through and shattered the German lines and drove up and captured this railway junction, These American troops are already on a level of competence and skill and bravery with anybody, with the British, with the French, and the Germans who had been there for years. And they gain this skill through a process of learning on the job. They gain this skill not because somebody taught it to them or trained them in that way, but they gain that skill through their own initiative and their own sense of of what kind of experience they were involved in. They were incredibly quick learners, just incredibly quick learners. So by the end of the war, by the time you reach the end of the war, the American army had been hardened uh, just with, with unbelievable quickness and had become probably the strongest army uh, on the European battlefield at that time. So there are many elements of the, of the Battle of the Mezargan. And... It's a battle that really bears remembering. It's a moment in our experience as Americans that bears remembering. Uh, and I think it's something that we should turn back to and we should, we should learn more about. I, th- I think it's something that will benefit us uh, as a nation. So thank you all for, for coming and, uh, and listening. And I'm uh, happy to answer any questions.
Yeah, you mentioned uh, an airman reporting back to headquarters. I wondered if uh, in your research, uh, did you find any use of air power in that particular battle? That's an excellent question. Billy Mitchell was the head of the American Air Service at that time. Mitchell's was, Mitchell was obsessed with the idea of strategic bombing uh, at the time. And as the battle went forward, his idea was not to use American aircraft in ground support or for artillery spotting, but instead to send them on large raids behind the German lines and use them to bomb railway depots, troop formations, and so on. The result was that the sense of the individual doughboys that the American Air Force didn't exist. The Germans enjoyed almost complete air superiority over the battlefield during that battle. And that was one of the reasons why the doughboys had such a tough time. German um, artillery relied on aircraft to spot for them and German artillery observing aircraft pretty much roamed at will over the battlefield, spotted for the artillery, and the German artillery was all that more accurate as a result. Um, so the answer to that question is, unfortunately, that uh, Mitchell's aircraft had very little effect on the battle, and although he claimed that his strategic bombing had had a great impact. There's absolutely no evidence uh, that what he was doing with his planes helped. Sir. I was taught 58 years ago that the, one of the most important contributions that General Pershing made to the war was that initially the French wanted to break up the AEF. And thank you. So would you comment on that? That's right. That's, that's another excellent point. If, I, if I'd had more time, there are so many things I wanted to talk about. Uh, so let me touch on it briefly. That was something called the amalgamation controversy. When the Americans joined the conflict and they won over there, the attitude of the French and British was that we should use these Americans to reinforce our own depleted units. Okay, And their point of view was this is the best way not only from our point of view or the point of view of the British and French, but also for the Americans to learn how to fight. If you bring them over here, you put them with French and British units, they have experienced officers, experienced soldiers who can train them and help them get used to what combat is like, but also, incidentally, it'll help us, the French and British, to fight this war, and also, incidentally, it will minimize the American uh, contribution and presence at the uh, at the armistice table, uh, you know, at at the, at the peace table after the war. So obviously there was a political element to it as well. Pershing, and this is much to his credit, I criticize Pershing for his idea of of combat. He had incredible willpower and incredible determination. He was instructed by Wilson, President Wilson and the Secretary of War, Newton Baker, that he must not give in on this point, that his goal is to field an independent American army in France and to fight an American battle that will you know, appreciably contribute to victory so that we can say at the peace table that we were there, that we fought. And the French and British gave him a really, really hard time. Uh, they were after him constantly. Uh, Douglas Haig, the British commander, and Foch, the, uh, the French commander, both pestered him, worked him over constantly to try to get him agree, if not to break up the American army entirely, at least to feed it in dribs and drabs, you know, add a regiment here to a French division, add a battalion there. And Pershing got to the point where he, he said at one moment with Foch that he was about to punch him in the mouth uh, during one discussion. But he didn't give in. And it's to his credit that the first U.S. Army was formed uh, that fought uh, the Meuse-Argonne and, and fought in, in that battle. Uh, so I have to give him great credit for that. That's actually a misconception. Uh, 
for the first years of the war, certainly, uh, particularly in 1914 and 1915, mass attacks were the order of the day, and there was very little sense of uh, these elements of, of outflank, of how do you how do you exploit breakthroughs and everything else. There was very little nuance. But as the war progressed by 1916, 1917, and particularly by 1918, the British and French learned slowly, but they did learn. Uh, and the British in particular had uh, very good ideas on how to maximize uh, you know, breakthroughs, how to minimize casualties, how to use combined arms, how to use fire and maneuver. Uh, their German opponents were very determined uh, and very skilled, uh, and their equipment uh, lacked in many ways. But their own sense of, of how to fight was actually very highly developed. Uh, and there was a lot that the Americans could have learned from them. Yes. Uh, a comment and then a, a, a question. Uh, Foch got an honorary doctorate degree from the University of Richmond in 1922. Yeah. Uh, the, the, what I'd like for you to comment on is that uh, the all-black divisions, I think, were fed into the French and or British units. Was that Pershing just giving, get, giving in? Pershing had to compromise in some ways, and it wasn't just the, the black divisions, but there were some other uh, regular divisions uh, like the 27th and 30th that he sent to fight with the British in Flanders. Uh, and in fact, when the Americans first entered the war, the 1st Division and some other divisions kind of entered individually at critical points on the battlefield. But he didn't set aside that ultimate goal of building uh, an independent army. Now, the, the black divisions, the 92nd and 93rd, part of that idea was that it's going to be practically impossible to get them to cooperate or to get other American units to cooperate with them. And if he sent the 93rd in particular to fight with the French, the French treated the 93rd very well. And the result was the 93rd fought very effectively. The 92nd, by contrast, there was a regiment of the 92nd, the all-black 92nd, that was actually used in the, in the Meuse-Argonne. And these men were led by white officers, but their morale was extremely low. Uh, they were not well-treated, they were not well-equipped, and they were not well-trained. And when they entered on the first day of the battle, they broke up. Uh, and there were lots of elements that went into that. The incompetence of their officers had a lot to do with it. But other Americans in the Army, they said, oh, look at this. Look what happened to this regiment of the 92nd. That proves that blacks can't fight. Um, and so that only increased the sense of, of, of racism. But then if you look by contrast at what the 93rd did, well-equipped, well-trained, well-treated, uh, many soldiers from that division earned medals of honor uh, and, and fought very bravely. I have two questions. <clears throat> One has to do with um, uh, <clears throat> the war toward the east. I understand that one of the factors that brought Germany to the peace table was the fact that uh, von Mackensen was getting a great deal of pressure from the east. So my question is, which of the American, which of the Allied armies were strong enough to put pressure on von, Mac on von Mackensen's army in the east? The second question is a comment. Do you think that the lack of America's attention to the battlefields in in France, maybe due to the fact that uh, Marshal Folk was the Allied commander in World War One, whereas in World War Two, Dwight Eisenhower, an American, was in command of Allied troops. Those those are both both excellent questions. Let me let me touch on the on the second one first. I think that was an element of it. It's true that, that Foch was the commander-in-chief of all the Allied armies as compared in World War I as compared to World War II, where Eisenhower 
was the supreme commander. Nevertheless, Pershing, Pershing himself was still treated in the United States as a hero. There was very little attention, even though technically Foch was the supreme commander. The Americans weren't too bothered by that. They still assumed that Pershing was the one who was calling the shots. So Pershing still at least was promoted and to some extent achieved that same degree of celebrity during World War I that, that Eisenhower did. But Pershing is also not as charismatic as Eisenhower, not nearly, not remotely as charismatic as Eisenhower. And I think in some ways that, that probably has something to do with it. I think that's a good point. Now the, the issue of what was going in the East is uh, it's a good point. It's, it's complicated. Uh, the, the Germans were forced to fight on two fronts. Their idea in, at the beginning of the war is that we can knock France out of the war first and then deal with the Russians at, at leisure. The Russians proved that wrong because they were able to mobilize very quickly and immediately invade Germany, so the Germans had to deal with them. Uh, unfortunately, the Russians were incompetent uh, in many ways. They were not well-led, not, not well-equipped, and the Germans defeated them over and over in a whole series of titanic battles. And eventually, by 1917, they had conquered basically most of Western Russia. Uh, and had knocked the Russians out of the war. By the time the Americans came in in 1918, they had knocked the Russians out of the war. And the Germans had brought over millions of troops that had been on the Eastern Front to launch this attack, this massive attack in early 1918 against the French that nearly captured Paris. However, at the same time, even while this is going on, even while the Americans have entered the, this conflict and fighting in the Meuse-Argonne, supposedly Russia is knocked out of the war, Germany still has millions of troops in Russia occupying Russia and in hoping to turn it into a German colony. Uh, that's something that's not well known. By the time you reach the end of World War I, the Germans are creating their own empire in Eastern Europe. There are shades of, of Hitler uh, and his own views in this. So they're still sucked into and they're still fighting the communists uh, and fighting white Russians as well and on the Eastern Front during that time. So they were still getting a lot of pressure uh, from the Eastern Front even by that time. Uh, does that answer your question? Uh, yes. Considering the uh, inexperience of the American troops uh, and assuming that the Germans were aware of that inexperience, is there any evidence to suggest that the Germans may have less lightly defended that section of the line? Uh, that's a good question. Actually, the Germans defended this section of the line with incredible determination. Other parts of the line, yes, by late 1918, the German army had been worn down quite a bit. But they still understood that this section of the line, they're defending this section of the line, was critical to maintaining the position of the whole German army on the Western Front. There were other parts of the front where they could just pull back, and they did, and let the, the French and, and British you know, take territory. But in this section of the line, they had to fight, they had to hold their ground, and they attempted to hold their ground without withdrawing. And they pulled in, part of the idea of this was offensive was to force the Germans to send their reserves to this section of the front pull them in and to weaken other sections, and that's what happened. Uh, the Germans sent massive reinforcements here to, to try to hold the Americans back. So it was actually a very important uh, part of the battlefield to them. Okay, one more question. Can you comment on any, um, can you comment on after the war, some of the American soldiers who stayed there and some went to school, like the University of Toulouse was one, but I mean, you know, the result and how long this went on and what was the deal on that? It's, for most American, most Americans were desperate just to get home and demobilization took much longer than they would have liked. It took several months uh, before they could go back. But there were lots of Americans who stayed. Uh, first of all, many African Americans stayed uh, in France in particular because they found the living conditions there, they found that they were accepted better than they were accepted in the United States. So lots of them stayed. 
but many uh, uh, individual uh, Americans stayed in order to study. Uh, some of them got married. Uh, they were sent, many American divisions were sent into Germany as part of the occupation force into Western Germany uh, and also stayed there. Um, I don't know a whole lot about you know, what universities or what educational institutions uh, would, have, would have attracted Americans or how many Americans exactly stayed, uh, but certainly lots of them did. Thank you. Very okay. nice. Thank you.